0: Okay, time for the main message today, and we are continuing our look at uh, Daniel, and we are up to chapter 7, and believe it or not, the 10th sermon in this series, and we'll be reading from Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, and we'll read verse to verse 8 this morning, with, if you have your Bibles with you, and uh, we won't be getting through the whole chapter today, um, but today will be a little bit of foundation for the next few chapters, which are prophetic in their uh, outlook so read with me as we look at daniel chapter 7 verse 1 in the first year of belshazzar king of babylon daniel had a dream and visions on his head of his head upon his bed Uh, then he wrote the dream and told us some of the matters daniel spake and said i saw in my vision by night and behold the four wings of the heaven strove upon the great sea and four great beasts came up came up from the sea to verse one from another Uh, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings and I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it and behold another beast, the second like like unto a bear and it raised up itself on one side and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it and they said thus unto it arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up uh, uh, among them another little horn, before whom there were were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll commit this time to Him. Father, we thank You for today. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we can trust every syllable in it. We pray for your direction and leading this morning. We pray that your your spirit would be our guide and our teacher. And we just do pray, Lord, that as we understand your word, Father, you would help us to apply it with your grace. We thank you once again in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, so far, let me give you a bit of a recap. Um, we've completed the first six books of Daniel. And as you know, Daniel has 12 chapters, or sorry, the first six chapters. and. In the first six chapters, we've become acquainted with Daniel, with his countrymen, um, with how they found themselves in Babylon, um, in specifically the capital. <clears throat> we've learned of their faith and and the various trials they went through, and how God revealed Himself um, through them to the various kings, specifically or more or more um, uh, I'm focused Nebuchadnezzar that he was the God who is above all God. So God revealed himself through them. The next six chapters are specifically prophetic in their outlook. So they are not in um, chronological order. So the first six chapters were essentially chronological. They're a history. The next six are prophecies and visions that Daniel received during the previous time. So they are panoramic. In their view of the future so they 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 cover a huge and wide uh, expanse of time um, beginning from Daniel's time to the very end of the world and the the coming of the Lord so the visions um, provide details of the coming kingdoms after uh, Daniel and after the Babylonians and the Persians as we'll see today and they coincide with and line up with the statue that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about. If you remember that statue, it had four main parts. It had a head of gold and chest and arms of silver. It had a belly of um, and waist of uh, bronze and uh, legs of iron. And then it had its feet, which were a mixture of iron and clay. So we're going to parallel this particular chapter, the beasts that are mentioned in this chapter, with those things so we are going to be looking at the first two anyway and uh hopefully you'll be blessed with the information that you uh that you get today and uh because i've been blessed with uh, actually putting it together so let's get into it daniel chapter seven verse one in the first year of belshazzar king of babylon daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed then he wrote the dream and told the son of the matter. so first of all we notice something interesting daniel had this dream at the beginning of belshazzar's rule over babylon so yes the same belshazzar uh, who saw the writing on the wall who was who died on that same day so we've gone back in time so this happened before the um the fall of babylon and daniel experienced this dream or this vision while he was on his bed or while he was either sleeping or napping and it seems as if it was around the time 553 bc and at this time, Daniel was at least in his late 60s. Okay, so we've gone back, he, he was in his 80s um, <clears throat> when Belshazzar, um, when, when the final, uh, when, sorry, when, when Darius was around. And we, we've gone back to him being in his 60s, probably late 60s during this time. So what was he doing during these years? Well, during these years, Daniel had essentially retired from public office and he was probably enjoying a very peaceful life and by the looks of it he was spending a lot of time studying scripture that he had in his possession so just think of this for a moment i mean obviously he didn't have the new testament but he had the books that were written before him and considering that he was in such a high position and he was actually a, um, a probably a very wealthy man at this particular time he probably had the resources to have his own copies of the scriptures made and so if you I mean, we enjoy the benefit of you know the Bible being available to us in so many different ways. You can you can buy as many Bibles as you like. You can have them printed up. You can have them on your computer. We can have them on our phones. Well in those days, if you wanted a copy of the Scriptures, you would probably normally have them um, done a book at a time. So whether it was Isaiah or um, or Jeremiah or uh, Ezekiel, you'd actually have them actually hand copied. And so there were people who were scribes, whose job it was to copy things and to make and, and to make uh, various copies of the same thing. So Daniel probably had at this particular time um, copies made of the scriptures. And if you turn with me to Daniel chapter nine, it tells us there. Look at verse one and two of Daniel chapter nine. <clears throat> This confirms that he had his own scriptures, his own manuscripts. It says there, in the first year of Darius, the son of Hazurus, and that's Xerxes, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king of the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So look at that. So he understood through the writings of Jeremiah, and he understood them by the books, by the books of the Bible, by the books of that he had available to him. The books he's referring to here are the books up to that point that he had. He may have even had a copy of the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He probably had Psalms available to him, Um, maybe Chronicles and all those ones that came before so Daniel realized at this particular point that it wasn't an ordinary dream that he had Um, and immediately it says he wrote it down and as you do you know sometimes you come up with an idea in the middle of the night and it's a good idea to write those things down Um, sometimes they otherwise they go flying around in your head and you don't get back to sleep again. So Daniel obviously has thought that this was an important thing that uh, he had experienced, and he said and he wrote down the actual vision. But it also sounds in this particular verse that if someone else is actually writing this thing down as he is dictating it to them, and that's why it looks as if he's called what, maybe a servant in or someone that he had maybe to write things down for him, because it says in the next verse, it says Daniel spake and said i saw in my vision by night so someone's taking dictation down it says in verse 2 daniel spake and said i saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea so someone's dictating his testimony here that daniel who probably had servants at this particular stage um, probably got pretty excited First thing in the morning, he's probably called his servant in and said, "Come on, come and uh, take some something down for me because I had I had a vision last night and I've written some of it down, but I want to tell you and I want you to write this down properly." So, I can imagine him calling his servant in and telling him what what he had experienced. <clears throat> so, what had he seen? Well, he sees he saw the four winds, which is essentially north, south, east, and west, whipping up a turbulent sea. Um, which leads to something else. So it's the, it says the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea. Well, the four winds whipping up a turbulency is a picture of the turbulence of the Gentile nations. The great sea here is referring specifically to the Mediterranean Sea. And so in the very sea, which affects is on, and it is on the coast of Israel. God's chosen people and promised land. So we find the term not just used here when re- in reference to the great sea, but in other places in the Bible as well. So I want to take you to another place which speaks specifically about the great sea. So turn to Joshua with me, chapter 23. So as you, So this is not talking about all the seas of the world. This is specifically speaking about the Mediterranean Sea. And in Joshua chapter 23, it says there, look at verse 1 to 4. It says, And it came to pass, a long time after the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies round about, that Joshua waxed old and and stricken in age. And Joshua called for all Israel, and for their elders, and for their heads, and for their judges. And for their officers, and said unto them, I am old and stricken in age. And ye have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he that hath fought for you. Amen to that. Behold, I have divided unto you by lot these nations that remain, to be an inheritance for your tribes from Jordan, the river Jordan, with all the nations that I have cut off, even unto the great sea westwards the great sea westwards from the jordan is the mediterranean so they 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 termed the great sea referenced in those days the mediterranean sea and that was one border of the inheritance that god had given his people which is there today so the vision is concerning empires which would arise from around the Mediterranean Sea, which have an effect directly upon that land of Israel. So let's continue. So as I've said, the the four winds are representing the north, south, east and west. And they whip up the the waves of the sea. And the turmoil of the sea represents the turmoil and the the tumult of the world's people and the world's kingdoms. Um, Any casual reading of history makes it pretty clear that this statement is true. There's an estimate that was made uh, by the historians Will and Ariel Durant that when they looked at the the entire history of known history that they had in their possession, they estimated that out of 3,421 years of history that they had in record, only 268 were without war. words in all of mankind's history, there's been very, very little peace. <clears throat> and when there weren't strivings <clears throat> of and fightings and wars between nations, there have been fightings and wars within nations and turmoil within nations themselves. The world has no peace. The world today has no peace. You know, thousands of years later, we look at what's going on around us and we see the the lack of peace the world has. There is always uh, something going on. There are always wars. There are always threats. There are always um, uh, um, strivings that the world tries tries to make, but they never quite reach it. But there's something else about this particular picture that I want you to take note of. It's that waters of the sea don't become turbulent until they're instigated by strong winds. So the water of a sea doesn't become necessarily turbulent. Doesn't doesn't we don't you don't get massive waves without something whipping up the actual waves. And what's that? Well, that's essentially the that's the uh, the wind. In other in other words, the effect of an invisible influence is the main driver of turbulence. And the picture here is if the sea is like, you know, the Gentile nations, the world, there's something invisible that's affecting the world and causing the turbulence to come up. And so this is spiritual in nature. The picture here is something spiritual is actually affecting the material. So what causes men to become tyrants? What what causes a Hitler? or a Pol Pot, or a Stalin, or a Mao, or people who are more than more than happy to kill, you know, millions of people to achieve their power? Why do men become tyrants? Why do, be, why do they become power-hungry dictators? <clears throat> why do their re- regimes become so powerful and oppress and kill many? Ephesians gives us the answer. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and, and you'll understand better what the Bible speaks about and why the world is always in the same sort of condition, regardless of how advanced it actually gets. It doesn't seem to get any better. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And this speaks about us as believers who have been saved from our old nature and saved from the death that we had were living in. It says in Ephesians 2.1, And you, so this is all of you that have been saved and have put your trust in Jesus, hath he quickened, which means made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past he walked according to the course of this world, the direction, the way this world went, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all have our conversation, our lifestyle, the way we thought in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So what's Paul saying here? That this entity, this prince of the power of the air, is the one who works within the spirit, within the children of disobedience. That's all the unsaved, essentially. And we've been saved from that particular state. But when you are in that state, you are easily whipped up, you are easily driven to a particular path. And if the devil wants to inspire someone like a Hitler to to do some of the worst atrocities and and, and fulfill some of the worst atrocities that the mankind's ever seen, he'll do that if that person has degraded himself and opened him up himself up to that particular thing. But when you are an unbeliever, you are susceptible to being driven like that because you don't have a new nature within you. You only have the old. And so the prince of the power of the air is like that wind that drives and makes the sea turbulent and rough. Well, you may ask the question, though, you know, how can God be in control then? When evil forces are inspiring people to do so many evil things and, and, and taking control of them and inspiring nations and, and raising them up. Well, it's the same reason, listen carefully, the same reason that God won when he allowed, One as in W-O-N, when he conquered, when he succeeded, when he allowed evil people To take his only begotten son and crucify him. The same way. You might say, well, how how does that work? Despite all the plans of Satan. Despite who he raises up and whips up and and, and causes, how much evil he causes. He always seems to fall into God's trap. If you've ever played chess, it's setting someone up for a move. He may think he's got a good move against you. But if you've got a trap set for him, as soon as he moves that pawn or that particular piece in that position, you've got him cornered, let's say. And this is what happens over and over again. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with me for a moment, because the question here is how can can it be said that God is in control when the devil seems to be inspiring people and whipping up so much evil in the world? 1 Corinthians chapter two verse six <clears throat> says, "Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect; yea, not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God hath or, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew." Well, had they known it they would not have crucified the Lord of glory had they known had the devil known had his his cohorts known had all those those demonic beings known had the Pharisees the Sadducees the Romans had they known that by crucifying Christ he was going to accomplish God's plan and win victory over the devil by rising up again on that third day. It says here they wouldn't have crucified him. So while the forces of darkness, the ones that are hidden, like the wind you can't see, yet can drive the waves of the sea, and the forces of darkness strive to drive man deeper and deeper into sin and iniquity, God already knows those moves and achieves his victory through their moves. We will see this today. Or, and, and in the coming weeks, as a devil seeks to raise conquerors, as the devil seeks to raise individuals who want to conquer people and are, and are power hungry, through those moves, God sets up his victory. We will see today that as the devil sought to raise conquerors to destroy God's people, and control the world, he falls further and further into a hole that he can't get out of. He inevitably helped to set up, for instance, the very circumstances that would fulfill God's plan to save the world through his Son and bring the message of the gospel to everyone in the world. As we have seen in the persons of Nebuchadnezzar, Darius and Cyrus already, God can reveal the truth to them and bless and protect his own people through them, whoever they may be. That is why the Bible teaches us to pray for our leaders regularly. Even if we disagree with their politics, God can still use them either by getting a message across to them, or maybe someone like Pharaoh who hardened his heart against God and would not refuse. God still glorified himself through some individual like that. God is always in control, regardless of whatever moves the devil may make. God is always in control. He's always multiple steps ahead. And that's why we can have great confidence that in the future, our destiny is sure. The victory is won. And that despite all the, the ragings and all the efforts the devil might make to destroy God's people, Jesus says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church who he has and he will protect. Let's continue. Daniel chapter 7, verse 3. It says, And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse, one from another, different one from the other. The four beasts arising from the sea are once again referring to four great beasts gentile empires or kingdoms which are different from each other they're different people and they arise from lands from around the mediterranean sea which affect the direct land of israel but while the world may look at the empires of the world with admiration like you know you look at that statue with the gold head and silver and you know you might look at that and say oh wow you know like nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue for everyone to worship God sees the, the 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 empires of the world as like wild beasts that essentially are tearing each other up to try to 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 or they're fighting over a dead carcass. So one kills the other one in order to get the prize, and that one kills the other one in order to get that prize, and the carcass is dead already anyway. It's interesting that the kingdoms of this world, and we look at the four different beasts now. Um, the kings of this world <clears throat> often characterise their civilizations of beasts with beasts of strength. If you look at the bear, Russia has a bear as its symbol. Uh, China has a dragon. The U.S. has an eagle. The, the, the U.K. has a lion, for instance. Um, I'm not sure what Australia what, what wild beasts Australia was left with, but we went with the kangaroo. Not too not too uh, powerful. Powerful to hop away. Let's have a look at these kingdoms. Verse 4. It says, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld to the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. So the first kingdom is parallel with and the same as the head of gold and represents the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar himself, or the Babylonian kingdom. The picture here is of a lion which has eagle's wings, which is really symbolic here. Um, And this is not the only place that Babylon is referred to in those terms as being a lion and an eagle. So turn back with me to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 4, because I want to show you that you dig deep enough into the word of God, you're going to find amazing connections that God is consistent with his picture. So, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 5, this is where God's declaring judgment on his own people. It says here, Declare ye in Judah and publish in Jerusalem and say, Blow ye the trumpet in the land, cry. Uh, cry, gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the defense cities. Let's let's hide ourselves. Set up the standard towards Zion. Retire. Stay not. For I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. The lion is come up from his thicket and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He is gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate. No cities shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. Who is he talking about here? He's talking about Babylon. Babylon is pictured here as coming to destroy Judah and Jerusalem. And it's pictured as a lion uh, about to jump out of the brush, destroying whoever's in his path. Now, if we go to Ezekiel, so if you go to Ezekiel chapter 17, you will see... Another picture of Babylon. Ezekiel chapter 17. So here we have references from three major prophets. From Daniel, which speaks about Babylon in prophetic terms as a lion with eagle's wings. Jeremiah speaks of of him as, as Babylon, as a lion. And here Ezekiel speaks of Babylon in, let's have a look, Ezekiel 17:1, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, put forth a riddle, and speak a parable unto the house of Israel. And say, Thus saith the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings, long winged, full of feathers, which had diverse colors, came unto Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. He cropped off the top of his young twigs and carried it up into a land of traffic. He set it in the city, a city of merchants. He took also of the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. He placed it by great waters and set it as a willow tree. Who's he speaking about? Babylon. That Babylon had already gone to Lebanon and carried away people into it from Lebanon. And God is saying to Israel, what's happened over there is going to happen to you. And they he cropped off the young twigs, the young ones. Remember what happened to Daniel and his friends? They were young. They were, they were from a royal lineage and they were taken in their youth to Babylon to serve the Babylonian uh, king. And the same thing had already happened to Lebanon. Israel was not the only one to experience this. And so God says, whatever's happened to Lebanon will happen to you as well. And it did. And so we have here two pictures of Babylon. One as a lion, one as an eagle. And now Daniel speaks of, Babylon as a lion with eagle's wings. And these are strong confirmations that these are speaking about these passages are speaking about Babylon and that Babylon is personified by its greatest king, the first king, Nebuchadnezzar. What's also very amazing is that before the rise of these kingdoms. Um, God had already pictured them in this way. You know what's amazing? Do you know what animal Babylon uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had sitting at the gates of Ishtar that led to his royal palace? Let me show you. Let me show you because they've actually discovered them. I'm going to show you a picture now. That is the relief that was on the sides of the walls of King King Nebuchadnezzar's palace, leading into it. Can you see what that is? It's actually a lion which has eagle's wings drawn onto it. Nebuchadnezzar chose that for himself. Yet God had already pictured him in that particular way. So I find that amazing. Anyway, I hope you do too. So note something though. Note that a lion has from the from a very long time ago been considered the king of the beasts. We often call the lion the king of the jungle. And the eagle is often considered the king of the birds. And so Nebuchadnezzar and his and Babylon is seen as the kingdom the king of kingdoms. Or the, mo- the kingdom with the most authority and power. So that is pictured in that statue as a head, the top of gold. It's represented by that. Now let's go back to our verse. It says there, And I beheld that the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Did you notice that it says that the wings were plucked off the beast? And he was then able to stand up as a man. And a man's heart was given to it. So do you remember what happened throughout the course of the first six chapters of Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar? We find during those things, God revealed himself more and more to King Nebuchadnezzar. And even at the end, he was he was um, humbled when God made him for seven years, essentially, live like a beast out in the actual field. And after that, it seems as if he repented of his of his uh, uh, of pride, of his arrogance towards God. And so this speaks about the transformation that occurred within the heart of Nebuchadnezzar during his lifetime and specifically towards the end. And so at the beginning of historically, during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he actually had conquered, you know, one people after another, after another, after another, and he and he, he spent much time, like it says, he went to Lebanon, he's gone to he's gone to Judah and Israel, he's gone to different countries, and he's just conquered one after the other. So it's war and bloodshed for a long time. But then towards the latter part of his life, he stopped actually he stopped actually um a fighting. He he made peace or he achieved peace and he actually um Uh, spent time building palaces and gardens and those sorts of things, beautifying whatever he had. So it seems if he not only uh, went became more peaceful towards the end of his life, but it says he became more and more, the Bible says he became more and more, more aware of the nature of God and that he eventually humbled his heart before God. So you'll notice it says a heart of a man was given to him instead of a beast. And so it may be here it may indicate that Nebuchadnezzar possibly got saved. He was given a new heart. One of the um, the, the pictures the Bible gives us about being saved is that God gives you a new heart, a heart that's after his, a heart that understands his ways. And so it it says here that this beast received a man's heart. Let's go to the second beast. Verse 5 says, And behold, another beast a second like to a bear and it raised up itself on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth of it between the teeth of it and they said thus unto it arise devour much flesh okay so now consider for a moment the comparison between a lion with wings and a bear a lion is quite majestic in its look a bear not quite as majestic but powerful what it lacks in speed and agility, it makes up with brute strength. So the bear represents the next kingdom, the silver chest and arms, what we call the Medo-Persian Empire, the, uh, an alliance that was formed and that which came in under, remember, Darius and Cyrus. They took the, the city of Babylon while Belshazzar was in rule. And so the Persian Empire may not have been as agile and efficient as Babylon at conquering, but what it lacked in agility and and efficiency, it it made up for in sheer numbers. Just to give you an example, when it came time to uh, defeat Greece and Persia came against Greece, Xerxes specifically, it literally threw millions of men and thousands, uh, over a thousand ships to try to destroy Greece and conquer it. it. It made up for agility with sheer numbers and brute strength. The Medo-Persian Empire also looks more clumsy. Like it says it's a bear which is higher on one side than the other. It looks lopsided as if it's sort of half sort of sitting down and half standing up. Well, the reason it's t- giving us that particular picture is that it's made up of two sides, Medes and Persians. And there was one side that was much more powerful than the other side. The Persians were much stronger, were much more powerful, were, were greater in number than the Medes. The Medes were the, the smaller part of this particular thing. And so this bear is lopsided because the Persians are much more greater in number and power and strength than the actual Medes. So there's a lopsidedness to it. It's not just one. Like the Babylonians were one people, they were unified. They were one language. They had one purpose. Whereas here, where you have an alliance, where you have any sort of coalition, you have to always make deals. You have to always try and please the other one. And so you find this in the Persian and Mede and, and Medean, um histories. That they always have to, you know, one has to have a king, the other one has to have a king, and so there's this, there's this always a playoff in it, I think, it doesn't make it as efficient and powerful or authoritative, but nevertheless, this bear is chewing on three ribs, and it says to devour much flesh, and it does, so during its supremacy, this empire conquered huge areas of land, um, increasing the Babylonian borders. And its main conquest, if you look at its chewing on three ribs, it conquered Babylon, it subdued Egypt, and then added Lydia as well. So there's three ribs it's chewing on. And whether that means it's gone in three directions or whether these are its main meal, the Babylonians who had conquered, the Egyptians who had conquered, and Lydia, um, I'd I'd probably aim more towards the, the three main conquests. But God had already foretold here in the Bible that the Medes and the Persians would overtake Babylon and become that second great kingdom. God had already foretold it in other places. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 17, which was written well before um, these events. Isaiah chapter 13, and we'll have a look at a few passages passages from Isaiah. Isaiah 13, verse 17 says, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. Who's them? The Babylonians. So God said the Babylonians are going to, going to overtake Israel. He goes, and then I'm going to stir up the Medes against them. which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. Their, their, their concern wasn't in wealth. Their, their concern was more in power. It says in verse 18, Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces, and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb, children. Their eyes shall not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdom, is the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, all their glory will be gone. It will go up in flames. And that's essentially what happened. The Persians came and took all their glory. And they were ruthless as well. And so what we find is that the babylon fell the medo persian empire took charge of that of the area of around the around the, uh, the mediterranean and at this particular time god had already foretold a particular man called cyrus that he would use to bring his people back home okay so he named him well before he was born Go to Isaiah chapter forty-five. Isaiah forty-five, verse one and two. God had foretold not only that the Medo-Persian Empire would then overtake the Medes, overtake the, the Babylonians, but He even named the person who would be the the great one, the one who epitomised. There it wasn't really Darius; it was Cyrus, who would epitomise the power of the Medo-Persian Empire. So Isaiah chapter 45 verse 1 says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings. Remember that? That referred specifically to Belshazzar. To open up before him the two-leaved gates. Remember the gates that were in Babylon? That, uh, That the river dried up and they were able to go right through with. And the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut and sunder the bars of iron. So while the book of Daniel now doesn't provide any further stories about the Jews living during the Medo-Persian Empire, you'll notice it doesn't. So we had stories about, you know, what, um, what the Jews went through under Babylon's rule, there's There's no more stories now about the Persians, about what they went through under Persia. But there are. So while the book of Daniel doesn't provide any further details or stories about the Jews living under Medo-Persia, there are other books that do. Specifically three that seem to sit in the Old Testament by themselves that recount wonderful stories of how the Lord continued to bless and watch over his people Uh, during this time. So I'm going to take you through quickly through those three books. The book of Ezra being the first. The book of Ezra recounts the proclamation of Cyrus the Great in allowing a great number of Jews to return back home to rebuild the temple under Ezra's leadership. So turn to Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. And in that, we see the proclamation of Cyrus the Great being recorded for us in the Bible about the people of God and his declaration that they could go home and rebuild their temple, which had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Remember, the Babylonians had taken even all the utensils out of the temple as well. So it says in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Remember, Jeremiah had already prophesied it. And now Ezra is saying, this is fulfilling that. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, once again, we have a declaration, a proclamation in God's word, from the gentile king thus saith cyrus king of persia the lord god of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he hath charged me to build him in house at jerusalem which is in judah who is there among you all of his people his god be with him and let him go up to jerusalem which is in judah and build the house of the lord god of israel he is the god which is in jerusalem and whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his of his place help him with silver, and with gold, and with goods, and with beasts, beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all them whose spirit God had raised, to go up to build the house. of of the lord which is in jerusalem and all they that were about them uh, strengthened their hands with vessels of silver with gold with goods and with beasts and with precious things beside all that was willingly offered also cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the lord which nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods Look what happened so Cyrus made a decree that Jews, whoever wanted, could go back and rebuild the temple of God. He took those articles which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the the temple in Jerusalem and Belshazzar had used for his drunken party, and he gave them back to the Jews. And on top of that, he called people to, to donate stuff to them to help them with their mission. The Bible says that God had stirred him up to do that. So that's the book of Ezra. The book of Nehemiah, which comes after Ezra, was a cupbearer for Artaxerxes, another Medo-Persian a king from the Medo-Persian Empire. And when Nehemiah had heard about his people who had gone back to rebuild the temple, were struggling because they were being opposed by people around them and that the walls of the city were broken down so that they were defenseless and struggling, it distressed him so much that he prayed to God and Artaxerxes then gave him permission to go back and rebuild the wall that surrounded the city. So turn with me to Nehemiah chapter one, verse one, and we'll just see the beginning of that one. So it says there, The words of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month of Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace, that's the Medo-Persian palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them, concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. What ended up happening? He was given permission to go back and rebuild the wall. And so we have the story then of Nehemiah rebuilding the wall. Then we have the book of Esther. And Esther is essentially about the beautiful Jewish wife of of King Ahasuerus, which is Xerxes I, I believe. And her cousin Mordecai um, persuades the king and her to retract an order that had been devised to annihilate the Jews on a given day. So turn with me to Esther, chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 8 and 9. It says there, and Haman said unto king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse, which means different, from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. In other words, it's not a good idea, king, to let them live. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay ten thousand talents of silver to the hands of those that are given the charge of the business to bring it to the king's treasuries. So the devi- a, a, a plot was devised without Xerxes probably being too aware of it because he had married Esther at this stage, and she was a Jew, and he probably wasn't too aware. He was, I think, he was he had the, he was hoodwinked a little bit, like um, like Darius to destroy these people whose laws were different than everyone else's and they refused to obey the king's rule. So when someone says uh, when someone says that to a king, well, he's given them permission to go and destroy them. And so they they devised a plan to kill all the Jews on a specific day. And they were going to get people and, and, um, and assassins and people like that to actually kill them. And so that's the story of that. So you have three books that seem to sit together for a reason because they were the times that the Jews lived under the Persian the Medo-Persian Empire. If you were wondering whatever happened to the Medes and Persians? What had happened to those people? Whatever happened to that empire? Well you know you need not look further than what we call today the country of Iran. Yeah, Iran. Iran was known as Persia. It was actually known as Persia to all foreign governments um, until 1935 not that long ago and it was at one stage really heavily influenced by Britain and Russia and so as a, a, a declaration that they had come out of that influence and they didn't want to be associated with Britain and Russia anymore um, uh, Reza Shah the the, the ruler made a proclamation um, in that particular day in 1935 that they would no longer be known as Persia but they'd be known as Iran and so Persia still exists it's called it just called Iran today and it's also interesting to note that the Jews were taken that the Jews were taken after the Jews were taken into captivity into Babylon um, and as we see in in Esther they became dispersed throughout the Babylonian and Persian empires. So they didn't just live in the capital. They had families. They grew. They spread out in the empire, and they lived fairly, like it looked as if for most of the time, fairly quiet sort of lives. And what you may not know or be aware of is that it was during these years, they didn't have a temple. They couldn't offer sacrifices if there wasn't a temple. What did they do? So, what they did during what we call the diaspora, the time that they were um, uh, taken away from their their home country and living in this on these foreign lands, what happened was um, things that we simply take for granted in our New Testaments. For instance, it was during this time of of the diaspora, during Babylon and Persia, that people we know and you read in the new testament called scribes and lawyers become so important to the jewish culture and the scribes were critical because while they were away from their hometown they needed copies of the new testament to be able to teach their children and to and to help them learn and so scribes became really important because there wasn't a temple there based there and not only scribes were important, and they became teachers as well, but lawyers became important as well because how do you interpret the word of God when you're in a foreign country? When you can't do certain things that you take for granted, for example, it might say, well, you know, when you commit a certain sin, you need to bring a certain sacrifice to the temple. When you haven't got the temple, what do we do now? And so there were lawyers who came up to help interpret that thing and how to do it when you're in a foreign country. So when you read scribes and lawyers in the New Testament, they essentially came up and became uh, well known because of this time away. If you didn't know already also, the Persians were the first people also to develop a postal service. So next time the, the mailman comes around, you might want to give a consideration to the thought that the Persian was the first one to set up a fellow on a horse to take things from one place to the other and have points of pick up and points of, of, of drop off. So they had an organized uh, mailing service, mainly from things from the king outwards and then from, from them back to the king, but it developed from there. And so it was a, an idea that later the Greeks and the Romans actually, you know, took, took as well. And that's why in the early years of Christianity, you have letters being able to be delivered all over the place uh, with, with fair confidence that they're going to get there. And so you have scribes and lawyers built up. You have a postal service uh, uh, designed by the Persians. And then what you have, well, you don't have a temple, do you? You're living in babylon with your family and maybe with other people you haven't got a temple to go to you don't have um don't have places you can meet um so what do you do well you build things called synagogues and that's why you see the word synagogue being written so many times in the new testament but you don't see them in the old testament synagogues didn't really exist in the old testament they existed in the new testament because by this stage they had become part of their culture. Why? Because they had spent so much time away from their homeland, whether it was under Babylon rule, whether it was under Persian rule, Greek rule or Roman rule, even when they got back to their home, back to, uh, to Israel, many of the Jews still lived away from Israel. And so in those remoter communities, what do you do to maintain your culture, to maintain the teaching of the word of God, What do you do? Well, you build something called a synagogue. And so synagogues, by the time the New Testament came around, by the time Christ was born, were already scattered all around the known world. Where did Paul the apostles go first to share the gospel when they went to remote places? They went to synagogues. Why did they go there? Because they found faithful Jews there who were reading the word of God that had been written for them by the scribes that were being taught by rabbis and and lawyers. And they were meeting in synagogues, local, what we call local, essentially community centers um, for Jews who were far away from home. And in those places, they learned from God's word. They prayed together. They supported one another. They ate together in those places. The picture is pretty clear. Despite the plans that the devil may have to destroy God's people, and to and to try to destroy the opportunity that, that he thought maybe from God bringing the Messiah into the world, he actually enabled it. He enabled it in so many ways, and just by the Persians and the Babylonians, we find well he enabled, you know, synagogues to be built. He enabled scribes to to rise up and lawyers to rise up he even enabled the the postal service to come into into play god inspired his own people even when they were away in a foreign land to preserve the truth that had been kept for them and i'm sure you're probably guessing where local churches came from where the idea of a local church came from sounds a lot like a synagogue doesn't it god even had established the model for a local church because of those days because israel judah was taken captive into babylon and persia the idea of a local church god had established that idea and we're still using it today and what do we do at our local church whether we're together or whether we're on zoom or well the idea is that we encourage one another in our local church. We read the word of God. We teach the word of God. We preserve our culture. You might say, well, what's our culture? Is it Australian culture? Well, no, no not earthly culture, a heavenly culture. The Jews preserve their culture in a foreign land. What's our land? Our land is heaven. The Bible says we are foreigners, we are pilgrims, we are strangers in a foreign land. So when we come together in church, when I'm here presenting uh, the word of God to you through YouTube or Zoom or whatever else it may be, when we come together um, uh, and speak to each other and encourage one another, when we get a chance to, to come together in church, what are we doing? We're encouraging each other. We're preserving the culture that God has outlined for us in his word. We're rejoicing in what we have in God. We're, in, we're, we're teaching one another. We're helping one another. We rejoice with one another. We are preserving heaven's culture in a foreign land. And so I'll close with this thought: Are you at home in this world? If you are, then you may be missing a very important point to your identity if you're a believer. Because the Bible says that we are not, we are no longer citizens of this world. We are no longer the same as we were before. We are new people, given a new identity. We are not people who just simply belong to the world and that's it and hoping to get to heaven one day. The difference between a religion and Christianity is is that Christianity says you are already a citizen of heaven. You are already saved. You are already given a place there. Your name is already, already recorded there. If you are in Christ, you are already a citizen of heaven. And so we should behave as citizens of heaven while we are in a foreign land which is the earth. If you're not saved, then the only culture you have is the earth. Whether it's the Australian culture or the American culture or Italian culture, whatever that culture may be, that is it, what you have. You are not a citizen yet. You can only become a citizen of heaven, the Bible says, when you've died with Christ. And God makes you a new person. And so then He grants you a new citizenship. So my my encouragement to you today is if you're a believer, remind yourself of that. Remind yourself of what church is and how important it is. Remind yourself of what the Jews went through and how faithful they were in the stories that we've read in Daniel and how the devil continues to try to destroy God's people. He may have just tried to destroy God's the Jews, God's people, but they were a picture of us in this world. So remember that he's trying to destroy you and I as well and our church. Remember your role. Brother Alan gave a a wonderful message this morning for the children to remember they may consider themselves to be small, they may consider themselves to be insignificant, but they are not. And none of you are. No one is insignificant from the smallest to the biggest. Whatever cultural background you come from, every one of you is important to the body of Christ. And our church is a collection, a local body that's been called to edify, to worship God, to preserve his word, to learn from his word, and to share the gospel. If you're saved this morning, God bless you. If you're not saved, you need to get saved and understand what salvation means because God paid a huge price to win you, to have you as his child. Think about that. And if you have any questions, you're more than welcome to email us at ministry at faithbaptistchurch.org.au. Call us, call someone that you know. God bless you all. Next time we will look at another trap that the devil fell into, which brought us the Bible and why we have the Bible or the New Testament written for us in Greek. God bless you all. I hope you have a lovely week and looking forward to seeing you all soon.